Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Since the Kosovo War of 1999, the status of Kosovo as a country independent of Serbia has not been resolved. Many countries, including the United States and most of Europe, recognize Kosovo as an independent country, but others do not, including Russia, which has blocked Kosovo's aspirations to join the United Nations. This has been the status quo for many years. But in recent months, there has been some renewed momentum in diplomacy intended to find an agreement that would satisfy both Serbia and Kosovo and lead to Kosovo's formal independence. To that end, on June 24th, the president of Kosovo set off for Washington, D.C. for high-level talks at the White House. But mid-air, the flight turned around when a special court unsealed an indictment against him for war crimes committed decades ago during the Kosovo War. This indictment is the latest wrinkle in the long effort to secure an international agreement over Kosovo's status. Another key issue are ongoing protests in Serbia and that country's accelerating democratic backsliding. On the line with me to explain the significance of these recent events in the Balkans is Yasmin Mujanovic. He is a limited-term professor of political science and policy studies at Elon University and host of the Sarajevo Calling podcast. We kick off with a discussion of the Kosovo-Serbia talks and then move into a conversation about the implications of rising authoritarianism in Serbia. I think you'll appreciate this episode. I know I did. And I should say, I would not have picked this topic to cover in a podcast episode if not for uh, an email I received from a listener suggesting that I do an episode on the situation in the Balkans. Uh, it was not necessarily too hot on my radar. I did, of course, notice that news when the Kosovar president uh, was uh, indicted for war crimes. Uh, but the broader issues of protests and rising authoritarianism and the status of these ongoing talks between Kosovo and Serbia was not something on my radar. And I'm very glad it was put on my radar by a listener. So if you have a suggestion of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please do send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Thank you. And now here is my conversation with Yasmin Mojanovic. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So it was it was very dramatic from everything that we've been able to gather. Um, so... 
President Hashim Tachi was, as we understand, literally on a flight headed towards Washington, D.C., and he was informed at some point during that flight headed to the White House to engage in these very high-level negotiations that were to be uh, chaired, that were to be led by uh, the U.S.'s Richard Grinnell, who was appointed as uh, the special envoy for the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue a while back. Hashim Tachi was headed to uh, go speak with Mr. Grinnell, and we believed also to be in dialogue uh, once he arrived there with the president of Serbia, uh, Aleksandar Vucic, um, that they were going to have these high-level talks about the status of the Kosovo-Serbia relationship. Uh, there was speculation that some kind of deal, although the exact scale and uh, sort of content of the deal was unclear, but we were promised some kind of major breakthrough. At the very least, that was certainly how Mr. Grinnell and some of his associates had presented it. And it was at that point, mid-flight, uh, that the news from the uh, Kosovo Specialist Chamber was published. Um, and uh, from my understanding, the, the plane pretty much turned around at that point, and Hashim Tachi headed back to Kosovo. And in recent days, it's my understanding that he's also appeared or pledged to appear in The Hague to answer questions from prosecutors. Is that right? Right. So Hashim Tachi has said that in the event that his, uh, you know, that these accusations, that the indictment is actually confirmed by the court, by a judge, um, he will, in fact, resign his position and he will go and defend himself uh, in, in The Hague. So that was, I think that was a big outstanding question that a lot of people had once, uh, once the news broke as to how exactly Hashim Tachi would play this whole thing and what it would specifically mean for domestic Kosovo politics. Um, because, you know, th there was, there was obviously a scenario in which there, a very serious political crisis could erupt if Hashim Tachi were to effectively say that, look, uh, I've, you know, I've been indicted or I will be indicted. Um, I'm, I'm being sought, uh, uh, by the Hague court and I, and I refuse to go. That would have been a, a whole separate crisis in its own right. Um, at this time, at least rhetorically, Mr. Tachi is pledging that he will, in fact, go if the charges against him are confirmed. And, and it's worth pointing out that this court, the Kosovo Specialist Chambers, I think is, is mm -hmm. the term of art, is you know one of those kind of hybrid courts, right, where you have um, international prosecutors. I think that, that they're American or the top prosecutor is an American, but working um, with uh, local Kosovo judges and prosecutors and under a kind of a hybrid Kosovo and uh, regime of Kosovar and international law. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think hybrid is, is very, is, is definitely the term here. Um, and, and, and I should caution our, your listeners at this time, I'm, I'm not a legal expert in this sense. So there are, you know, folks who, who could go into the nitty gritty of this much, much better than I can, but it's, so I think the, the kind of structural point to be made, this, this was a court that was created to kind of deal with some of the perceived, um, uh, how can I put it, lack or some of the unaddressed issues left by the ICTY, the the the, um, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, which had, according to some critics and, and some analysts, sort of inadequately dealt with some of the issues related um, 
to the Kosovo War specifically. Um, this 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 uh, uh, court was subsequently created in 2017 to to address that issue, especially in the context of the ICTY winding down the last of its cases and appeals. Um, and it does uh, uh, in, involve a very complex relationship between both international law and actually domestic Kosovo law and courts. Um, so it's, it's in that sense, it's a, it's a very innovative body. And, uh, I think there has been a lot of interest, um, you know, for folks who work on questions of international justice and, um, international law as to how successful this court will actually be, um, and whether it's potentially a model for how we deal with, um, war crimes and crimes against humanity in the future. Um, but obviously a lot will depend on how, you know, how well some of these big ticket cases are ultimately handled. And what is he alleged to have done? So, so Hashim Tachi is being accused of a whole slew of essentially war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, during the Kosovo War, he was a very, uh, along with a, a number of other key individuals, um, all of whom were um, key members in the Kosovo Liberation Army, which was the uh, guerrilla army. Uh, of the Kosovar Albanian community in Kosovo during the 1999 um, war with the Yugoslav security forces uh, uh, during the Milosevic regime. And there obviously were uh, uh, war crimes that were committed against ethnic Serbs as well as ethnic Roma people uh, during the Kosovo war uh, in conjunction with the much uh, bigger and structural issue, which was obviously the uh, kind of systemic campaign that the Milosevic regime waged against the ethnic Albanian community in Kosovo. Um, so, you know, there, the, the charges are very significant. Um, they're, they're, they implicate Mr. Tachi in um, very serious crimes against civilians um, in Kosovo during the war. But of course, we we will still actually have to wait and see what the uh, uh, what the judges at the court uh, uh, will say themselves about the uh, about the charges. So I'm curious to learn how this indictment, seemingly at a, at a very sort of pivotal moment in mm -hmm. the dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia, uh, will affect negotiations. And maybe just to kind of take a step back, remind people uh, that you know since the Kosovo War, Kosovo has been recognized as an independent country by many, many countries around the world. I don't, there's like this Kosovo thanks you website that I right. uh, peruse sometimes that lists all the countries. Uh, that uh, have recognized Kosovo, but it is not, um, you know, a member of the UN. Mm -hmm. Russia, in particular, has opposed its um, becoming sort of a full-fledged, you know, independent, you know, member state of the UN. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently, they, Kosovo is in dialogue with Serbia over potential terms of its independence. Is is that sort of a, a correct framing? Yeah, I mean, so you know, to, to to catch us all up, I guess you know, you're right that that obviously the, there's a couple of kind of key highlights that happened over the last two decades. One was obviously the Kosovo War and the end of the Kosovo War and the onset of a kind of international administration of Kosovo as a territory. In 2008, Kosovo formally declared independence. Um, it, it 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 formally and legally broke away from uh, uh, Serbia proper. Uh, Serbia obviously does not recognize that, and that's sort of the the, the essential crux of this whole issue. Um, 
Kosovo considers itself a sovereign and independent state, and it is in fact recognized as a sovereign and independent state by most of the international community, uh, though as you point out, it is not a member of the United Nations, primarily because of the veto that is exercised by Russia in particular, but also China um, over over its admission. Um, and, and that is, of course, largely at the request and behest um, at Serbia, although it has to be said uh, as concerns Moscow's position on this, they have their own kind of complicated political um, strategy that they've that they've been weaving uh, vis-a-vis Kosovo in particular over the last few years since uh, the onset of the uh, uh, Russian invasion and occupation of large swaths of eastern Ukraine and in particular Crimea. So there's there's a lot of kind of international stakes to this, um, as well as obviously uh, uh, regional and, uh, uh, you know, very specifically Serbia-Kosovo um, stakes involved in all of this. So the 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 kind of the holy grail in, in in the relationship obviously is something that both the European Union and the United States have been working on to various extents and and with various degrees of energy and interest since 2008 uh specifically which is of course um that you know there would be some kind of recognition deal and some kind of final settlement between Serbia and Kosovo, which would presumably involve um, Serbia both recognizing uh, Kosovo's independence and sovereignty. Uh, Kosovo would likewise obviously recognize uh, Serbia's uh, uh, sovereignty and and, and independence, though that's uh, a much bigger kind of deal in the whole thing. But also we would have some kind of final settlement as concerns the rights of uh, and the rights and political position of the ethnic Serb minority um, in in Kosovo proper. So there's a lot of very fluid pieces um, to the whole situation, and and then there's of course the broader issue, or I shouldn't say broader issue, but the specific issue, for instance, of um, a, a number of very very important religious sites in Kosovo, in particular for the Serbian Orthodox community, and and it's long been speculated that some kind of a special status would have to be negotiated for. Um, uh, uh, those properties as well. So there's a lot of kind of emotional and political weight attached with the issue, which obviously speaks to, um, you know, why it's taken this long. Though obviously it has to be said, I think realistically speaking, the, the brunt of the weight of the, um, unsettled status of Kosovo has 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 been borne by ordinary Kosovars in 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 Kosovo itself and I think in particular Kosovar Albanians um you know who who find themselves in 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 this very bizarre and uh, very unfortunate international limbo um most strikingly for instance the fact that uh you know there are five European Union member states that do not recognize Kosovo, um, although states, you know, like Germany and France and, and Canada and the United States obviously do recognize Kosovo, uh, uh, there is great significance attached to the fact that we do have five non-recognizers in, in Kosovo, or pardon me, in the European Union, uh, as concerns Kosovo. Um, and that has also meant that, for instance, things like visa liberalization, which is obviously a huge issue for ordinary Kosovars, have for years kind of sat unimplemented by the European Union, for a number of reasons, but uh, uh, in many ways, largely having to do with oftentimes obstructs, ob- obstructionist positions taken by some of these um, non-recognizing states. So, so, so the idea is that direct dialogues be- mm-hmm. between Kosovo and Serbia would resolve many of these issues and presumably um, lead to some sort of formal agreement between the two countries 
But would Russia uh, submit to an agreement like that, even if Serbia does? Well, this is this is the big X factor, and this is genuinely what we don't know. So, you know, some I was hoping like, you would know. That's why I asked. <laughs> that was yeah. my big question coming into this. Even if <laughs> Kosovo and Serbia sign an agreement, mm-hmm. will Russia actually, you know, let a resolution admitting Kosovo into the UN pass? Well, this is the thing. I mean, my own theory is is no, um, because it would be a power move by the Russians to to do that, or at the very least to hold up the decision in some meaningful sense of the term. I mean, I, I wrote about this and argued uh, argued this point a while back. You know, your listeners may recall that um, you know over the last two and a half, three years or so, we've heard a lot of chatter about this so-called land swap uh, between Kosovo and Serbia that was floated actually initially by Tachi and Vucic uh, themselves, the idea basically being that there would be some kind of territorial exchange that would take place between Serbia and Kosovo, um, in particular sort of the, the 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 broadest structure of it that we that that we've been able to glean so far is that essentially you would get um a handful of these um predominantly ethnic serb municipalities in the north of kosovo they would be handed over to serbia and in exchange kosovo would get uh by some versions of the story a handful of the predominantly ethnically albanian municipalities in the south of serbia and recognition from serbia but as you point out, can't imagine Serbian nationalists like that so much. <laughs> well, yes, that's 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 one of the big issues. That's one of the big issues. But even if you sort of, I mean, there's also most Kosovar Albanians are against this uh, proposal. It's it's been extremely unpopular actually on both sides. But of course, the 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 sort of um, you know the real issue on the horizon, as you point out, is even if somehow this deal were to be negotiated. Um, ultimately, it would be up to the UN Security Council to admit Kosovo into the UN. And there is absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin would not decide ultimately that it was in their own best interest for whatever reason, perhaps as concerns their strategic interests in Ukraine or Syria or anywhere else, um, that uh, that they would actually still continue to block Kosovo from taking up its seat in the in the United Nations. Um, one other question I, I have for you, and I, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I, I'm just kind of curious to learn, you know, why, like of all the people in the U.S. government, is Rick Grinnell the one who is, you know, spearheading U.S. diplomacy on this issue? I mean, for people who are not familiar, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, knew him way back when as John Bolton's spokesperson at the U.N., but, you know, he kind of made a reputation during the Obama years as a very combative Twitter personality mm-hmm. um, and then became U.S. ambassador to uh, Germany. He was a very much a Trump loyalist and, you know, rankled all sorts of feathers in, in Germany and then came back uh, to become acting national director of intelligence uh, as a way seemingly to protect uh, the president of some mm-hmm. intelligence inquiries. Mm-hmm. And now he has sort of this this job. Um, it just seems like odd to me um, that this would he would be getting this portfolio. Sure. And I mean, it's it's doubly odd for the fact that just a handful of weeks before Mr. Grinnell was appointed as the presidential envoy for the Kosovo-Serbia dialogue, uh, the State Department, the U.S. State Department actually appointed another 
uh, separate regional envoy for the Western Balkans, uh, who is a kind of career diplomat, uh, a career foreign policy officer um, in, within the State Department. So so that in and of itself was very, very odd. Um, I can't speak to, obviously, the, um, the, the specific logics of the White House or the president. Um, my understanding is, though, I think from kind of the regional local level, there was a lot of appetite on the part of both um, the Vucic government and the Tachi administration um, to have Mr. Grinnell in this position. Um, he was perceived, and I think understandably so, as being a kind of direct link to the president, uh, as being a very, very loyal soldier, as it were, um, of, of uh, you know, quote unquote, Trump world. And as such, um, having Mr. Grinnell take care of this portfolio and lead this portfolio, um, especially with all the kind of bravado that he has already done. Um, you know, as my colleague, uh, 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 Valerie Hopkins, the journalist, uh, she, she commented on our podcast actually a couple of weeks ago that having spoken to Mr. Grinnell at some point, um, he said something to the effect of, um, you know, that his, it was his desire to get Kosovo and Serbia, quote unquote, lit, uh, <laughs> meaning kind of economically, I guess, activated, robust, you know, this kind of Trumpian deal making shtick that we're all very familiar with at this point, I think, is what um, Mr. Grinnell has been expected to do. Um, and in some ways, that has been very attractive to Alexander Vucic and Hashim Tachi, who are also, um, you know, they are deal makers, and they're not traditional politicians. Uh, you know, uh, Alexander Vucic comes out of the ultra, ultra nationalist right wing of Serbian politics. Hashim Tachi is a, a, a former guerrilla. You know, they're not... Um, they're not exactly bureaucratic types themselves. And on, you know, so all of that said, and plus the idea of Grinnell having this direct line to President Trump, I think was very, very attractive for both, um, you know, key people in Belgrade and Pristina. No, no, that that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, So I'm glad you mentioned Vucic because, you know, we are speaking um, really just a day after some major protests in Belgrade. Um, the sort of purpose of the protests, I've seen sort of competing explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, certain things are, are, are a fact that, you know, what was it in late June? Mm-hmm. Um, there was an election in Serbia. Uh, you, you can explain better than I, but my understanding is that Vucic called for these elections in the midst of a pandemic, uh, in order to tighten and expand the grip on power of his right wing movement. And then, you know, shortly after the elections, ordered a national lockdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think just to kind of step back, um, the structural point to, uh, to note here is that Serbian democracy has been declining um, in, in, you know, in fits and starts for the better part of the last decade, in particular, since Mr. Vucic and his uh, Serbian Progressive Party kind of came to the fore in and around 2012. Um, since that point, we have seen uh, what were already, relatively speaking, um, you know, very modest gains that uh, uh, Serbia had made in its overall democratic administration since the fall of Milosevic in, in, in October of 2000. Um, there's been very, very significant um, democratic decline and rollback. Um, the SNS has progressively uh, come to dominate the Serbian state and the Serbian security services. And of course, um, the Serbian media uh, environment and space um, 
they've taken more and more firm control over much of the last decade. Um, as you point out, uh, we had elections very recently. There was already a lot of controversy going into those elections, uh, uh, even before the pandemic broke out, actually, because the Serbian opposition parties have for a very long time now argued that, uh, you know, functionally speaking, Serbia has become so illiberal and so unfree um, that there are in their minds, no actual uh, free and fair elections taking place anymore. And so they actually boycotted the elections, um, or most of the opposition parties did, in order to uh, demonstrate, they argued, to the international community that, you know, Serbia was now a decidedly autocratic state. Um, now, putting aside the kind of strategic uh, um wisdom of that approach it is the case that they went through uh with with that threat the 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 elections did take place uh, just a handful of weeks ago as you noted in the midst of a global pandemic um and in the midst actually of um a, a major spike in uh coronavirus cases in Serbia itself that at the time of the election campaign uh the government and Mr Vucic himself were uh continuously assuring their citizens that everything was under control it wasn't a major issue so on and so forth and then as you point out uh once the elections concluded and the SNS not only uh, uh, absolutely dominated, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, um, but I, I believe it's something like, f- f- you know, nearly uh, uh, f- four fifths or, you know, two thirds, just an absurd amount of votes that they that they um, finally won in the elections. They effectively have no opposition in the parliament at this point. Um, once all of that had concluded, as you note, uh, uh, two or three days ago, Mr. Vucic took to the air and declared that there was going to be the reimposition of a very, very stringent curfew in Serbia. And this, of course, um, caused no small amount of outrage among ordinary citizens. And it also tapped into, again, as I was saying, uh, a longstanding concerns about democratic decline in Serbia, because uh, uh, you know some of your listeners may recall that over the last two years or so, we actually have seen these waves of protests against the Vucic uh, government in Serbia that have sort of come and gone in fits and waves uh, and have variously featured um, at times very prominently, unfortunately, uh, members of the uh, Serbian opposition who are themselves very, very extremist and far right in their nationalist views. At times, there's been a more kind of civil society oriented face. Um, It's still unclear where we're sort of at in that kind of framing and thematic positioning vis-a-vis these protests. Um, But it's certainly fair to say. Meaning that the protests could be driven by sort of ordinary um, fed up uh, Serbians who are upset about democratic backsliding, the COVID uh, crisis, or it could be far right nationalist Serbians um, upset that Vucic is sort of giving away parts of Serbia and his negotiations with Kosovo. Yeah. So that's unfortunately kind of the, the dynamic that we have seen over the mm. last few years. Um, the, the, the reality is unfortunately that in Serbia presently, we don't really have what I think we could genuinely characterize as a kind of non-nationalist opposition to Serbia, uh, or pardon me, a non-nationalist opposition to the government. Um, virtually all of the parties that are characterized as being on, um, you know, part of the kind of opposition in Serbia are themselves often playing with various kinds of nationalist themes. Um, some 
very, very explicitly and in very, very reactionary ways, like the uh, Dveri uh, party, which is a far-right party and gained a lot of prominence uh, during the last wave of protests. But at the same time, I think it would be very unfair to not acknowledge that there is a lot of a, a lot of Serbians and young Serbians in particular who are equally disillusioned, both with these parliamentary opposition parties and the Vucic government, and who have oftentimes themselves been um, at the forefront of uh, previous protests waves. Um, for instance, the uh, the so-called uh, "Let's Not Drown." Belgrade protests, which were uh, uh, to do with some uh, controversial development issues on the uh, Belgrade waterfront. So at this time, I think it's still a very, very fluid situation with these news protest with these new protests. My sense, you know, right now <laughs> in 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 early July, as it were, is that this does seem to be a more kind of genuine uh, citizen led um, eruption of uh, uh, anger and disillusionment with the Vucic government. At some point, the protests may once again be hijacked by some of these more um, reactionary elements. Um, but for the moment, this seems to be a very kind of genuine outpouring of, uh, of resentment at, at Mr. Vucic and his administration. Uh, I guess finally, you know, in what ways has the promise of entry into the European Union um sort of failed to live up to it seeming what I would seem to be like the promise um, that Serbia wouldn't democratic backslide sort of in, in other words, you know, right. Serbia is accelerating its democratic backsliding at the same time. It's seeking entry into the European union, presumably, you know, the opposite was supposed to happen. Sure. I mean, I think, I think the reality is that the so-called transformative potential and transformative capacities of the European union have proven themselves in reality to be extremely limited. Um, European policy as concerns the broader Western Balkans has for many years, indeed decades, I think, essentially since 2003, the the, the famed sort of Thessaloniki summit when uh, the European Union formally pledged to the states of the Western Balkans um, that all of them had a credible European perspective and that the European Union would work with them to get them into the European Union. Um, and while that was a, you know, a, a hugely important moment and a kind of landmark decision and indeed has proven to be sort of the, um, the, the anchor point of the Western Balkan EU relationship since then, in practice, um, that relationship has been much, much, much more fraught. And to my mind, I think one of the central problems with it is that the European Union itself has shown itself to be at times incapable and I think much more alarmingly unwilling to actually confront in a meaningful sense of the term uh, the architects and agents of democratic backsliding in the region. And the result of that has been not only that the process in countries like Serbia, but also Bosnia, Kosovo, North Macedonia, Montenegro, which always were going to need a much longer period of time to sort of get their houses in order because of the the nature of, um, in the case of Bosnia, for instance, the severity and catastrophe that was the Bosnian war and the Bosnian genocide. But in other places like Serbia, for instance, the 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 extremely corrosive and toxic uh, legacies of the Milosevic regime. Right, these states were always going to need uh, a, a very um, you know, a different kind of approach than the EU, for instance, had marshaled in uh, the states of the former Eastern Bloc. And the reality is that never really happened. 
And the consequence of that has been that there's been a lot of disillusionment over the last decade, I think, in particular, in the states of the Western Balkans themselves. I think, realistically speaking, the vast majority of the people in the region who are not yet members of of the European Union, in states that are not yet members of the European Union, I don't think that very many of them still believe that that the EU is actually a credible horizon, at least in their biological lifetimes. Um, that has spurred a massive emigration crisis. And then relatedly, and, and this is sort of the final point that I would make here, even the states that have joined the European Union from the former Yugoslavia, like Slovenia and Croatia, we've actually seen very significant democratic backsliding in these states as well. Um, so... I, I think in many ways, and I, and I say this with a heavy heart because I, I am a believer and a champion of, of, of sort of the European future of the Western Balkans, the European project and practice has not really worked out very well for the region. Uh, well, Yasmin, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. Now I need yeah. to go read your book. <laughs> uh, you know, to have a beer Well, we first. plugged your podcast, so we should plug your book, too. <laughs> Thank you very much, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote it a handful of years ago, two or three years ago now, Hunger and Fury, uh, The Crisis of Democracy in the, in, in the Balkans. And it talks a, about a, in, in more depth about a lot of the issues that we've already touched on today. Uh, great. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Yasmin, and I'll post a link to his podcast and to his book, on the homepage of globaldispatchespodcast.com and in the show notes. And again, thank you to the listener who reached out to me and suggested that I cover this issue. Much appreciated. We'll see you next time. Bye.